Psalm 103 at verse 13, reading through 18. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his precepts to do them. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of praise. We thank you for the grace in which we stand, by which we stand, and the story of redemption that you have revealed to us in your works. Father, we ask that you continually remind us of your character, provide the opportunity to love you in the simple reality of whom you have revealed yourself to be, but that we have even the greater blessing on top of that, all these that can be done. We ask that you enable us to give you an inkling of the sense of the greatness of who you are and, and what you have done in our lives. We ask that you remind us of the reconciliation you've provided to us and allow us to stand in that and be faithful to you and your ordinances and that we can faithfully be witnesses to you in the world. We ask that you be with David as he expounds your word to us tonight, that you allow us to hear and move our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. One of the commentators that I consulted said that these two verses, 15 and 16, comprise a lecture on mortality, reminding us of our mortality, reminding us of the uncertainty of life, the shortness of life, and all these other things, and should cause us, of course, to be more grateful for good health, more grateful for strong life, all these other blessings that David has been thanking God for. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. I trust that we are all of us encouraged through going through this psalm to make more uh, conscience of blessing Jehovah morning and evening and momentarily throughout the day. And indeed, I agree with that commentator that this does comprise a lecture on mortality, these two verses speaking of the, the uncertainty and, and the shortness and the 
frailty of our lives, uh, comparing such with grass and flowers of the field, being subject to the wind just passing over it and blowing us easily down. And after we're gone, the place thereof shall know it no more, we read, we're told. After we're gone, what's the big deal? What did we ever do? We're here, and then we're gone. And uh, I was reminded of a, you may not think that I can remember all the way back to high school, but I was reminded of a history teacher, and uh, he was a nice old gentleman, and he would get kind of excited. Uh, I think he loved history. He even got so excited, he sometimes would be standing on his desk, and. And that kind of preaching struck me. But I remember one exhortation that he gave. Leave your footprints in the sands of time, he said. And from his perspective, I'm not certain of what it was, but I think he was suggesting that we do something remarkable, like coming up with a, a vaccine for some terrible disease or some such thing as those. But I would use that exhortation with regard to believers. And if we could uh, leave our footprints, as it were, in the church, that uh, things that we've done because Christ led us to do them, things that we've done out of love for him, um, <coughs> that there would be some evidence, maybe not to any individual, maybe not to any man, but evidence uh, that God can look upon that we were here. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. The writer of Ecclesiastes uh, is straightforward with some of these issues, and he's, I'll remind you of a couple of points he makes. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will lay it to his heart. It's a very good reason given here by this writer, by God the Holy Spirit, for us to participate in funerals. I'm not suggesting that we go to everyone that's around the corner. I'm talking about going to funerals of people that we know, people that we have known <clears throat> or know someone in their families. And I freely confess that I'm not very keen on going to funerals. And the writer of Ecclesiastes here is uh, giving me a rebuke. It is better to go to the house of mourning that we recognize what the psalmist is speaking of here and that we lay it to our hearts. The same writer elsewhere in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes has said for everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And uh, I'm thankful uh, as I Reminisce on this verse uh, 
that I, the Lord was uh, pleased to let me live through the mamas and the papas and, and uh, to cite this verse for much better reasons than whatever they sang it for. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Mortality, mortality. It is gone, life is gone. Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind is what the psalmist is saying here. Forgotten in the grave, death has its way with every one of us. Many have there been from the beginning of the world, even until our day, that willfully say, and I'm sure that you've heard people say this in one form or another, let us eat and drink and make merry, for tomorrow we die. And while they may not be sincere in saying that, they try to put forward some kind of a, of a picture of themselves that's cavalier and jovial and, and uncaring, uh, willing to accept whatever comes along. There aren't really that many that are so willing to face death. And it's sad for the ones that face death carelessly, eat, drink, and be merry, or tomorrow we die. What an attitude. We are told by God the Holy Spirit in his word that there were such people in the days of Noah, and this shall be such even unto the coming of the Son of Man. We read that in Matthew, of course, 24. And as were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and they took them all away. So shall the coming be of the Son of Man. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Epicureans just enjoying all the good things and caring nothing about what's coming. I think there are a lot of people, sadly, with this attitude and sincere about it let's just enjoy the day. Epicureans. But death shall come to each one of us and we will be known no more, not by mankind. The place where we have been will know us no more. This mortality that the psalmist is speaking of, three score and 10, maybe four score years is what Moses tells us in the 90th Psalm. Mortality is the state or the definition of being subject to death. So we are all interested, whether we like it or not, in, in mortality. We're interested, it, we're related to mortality. Death will come upon each and every one of us
unless, of course, the Lord comes before that. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Yes, I believe it bears repetition. We could say gone in 60 seconds. Title of a excitable movie. I didn't say exciting, I said excitable, active, whatever. Only reality advises us that it's gone in a lot less seconds than 60 seconds. It's gone much sooner than that, much quicker than that. Reality advises us that it's gone in less than a second. In a moment, momentarily, life is gone. In a millisecond, whatever that is, in the blinking of an eye, we have only the breath that is presently in our nostrils. And then we're gone. David has sung in his best known psalm, the 23rd, in his prayer of thanksgiving and praise, singing, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. That millisecond, that moment, that blinking of an eye is as momentary as a fleeting shadow. I believe that's at least connected to this phrase, the shadow of death. He has called this the valley of the shadow of death. In the book of Job, we can find the words of Bildad, one of Job's so-called friends, that are recorded there for our consideration. Bildad has called death the king of terrors. Indeed, often it has been such a king. In plagues, in hurricanes, tsunamis, the king of terrors has reigned mightily, powerfully, been a tyrant as well as a king. The preacher of the message of Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 15 points uh, out the fact that we all fear death, whether we want to admit it or not. We all fear death. When he speaks of all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's a bondage. This fear of death is a bondage that I think the psalmist here, David, would try to shake us loose from. In many other places in Scripture, would try to shake us. I'm talking about believers, of course, to shake us from this fear of death. Those who are not believers have every reason to fear death. But hopefully, we do not fear death as they do. And we should not be subject to this bondage and make this king of terrors also to be a slave driver with regard to his 
vocation, death's vocation, taking life away. We should strive and, and struggle if we have to to reduce this fear of death, praying regularly would be a big help. I have found that. Reading the word of God would be another great help to take away this fear of death. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Why should we have fear of death if we have peace with God? Does it matter that we have peace with anyone else? If we're at peace with God, we should be at peace with death. But what fear we often have of death, what this fear can drive men to do or not to do, to refrain from something because of the fear of death, to do something because of the fear of death. It drives us like a slave driver. It whips us into a frenzy, whips us into submission to do things that we would not otherwise do, to do its bidding. I would recommend reading Fox's Book of Martyrs occasionally. You would learn of men that, and women that suffered greatly because of the fear of death, that yielded many times to it, that fear. Many other writings like Book Fox's it is recording of the suffering of many individuals that were standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, that were standing for Jehovah, the true and the living God. One such sufferer was one called Thomas Cranmer. He was uh, at one time the Archbishop of Canterbury but we're informed by Fox that he was taken and by authorities cast into a prison. He was charged with treason. I believe treason against the state as well as treason against the church, whatever they wanted to call that heresy. He was kept three years in prison where they were unable to break his spirit. He had strong faith in Christ, strong faith in the Bible, strong faith in the truth, strong faith in God. They were unable to shake that through tortures and, and taking things away from him, reducing him to almost nothing in that prison cell. He was kept those three years like that. The evil one then changed tactics, Fox tells us, and brought him out of the prison and placed him in the house of the dean of Christ Church, where he was treated with every indulgence. This contrast of treatment, this contrast of circumstance overwhelmed him. The contrast to that hard imprisonment threw him off his guard, Fox has written. His generous nature was more easily seduced by this liberal conduct than by threats and fetters 
And they convinced him to recant of his errors, of his heresies. He wrote this confession, keeping in mind what we're looking at here, the fear of death. Listen to his confession. I, Thomas Cramner, late Archbishop of Canterbury, do renounce, abhor, and detest all manners of heresies and errors of Luther and Zwingli and all other teachings which are contrary to sound and true doctrine. And I believe most constantly in my heart and with my mouth I confess on holy and Catholic church visible, without which there is no salvation. And therefore, I acknowledge the Bishop of Rome to be the supreme head on earth, whom I acknowledge to be the highest bishop and pope and Christ's vicar, unto whom all Christian people ought to be subject. And that was only a part of his confession. But it's kind of uh, mind-boggling, isn't it? You have to consider the mind-boggling torture and, and uh, constraints that he was under. And then to throw him in that situation, basically telling him, if you'll just recant, You'll have an easy life. You'll have this kind of a life. He recanted, as we just read, in very, very conspicuous expressions, defending the Church of Rome. But because, Fox goes on to tell us, but because of the incredible hatred that Queen Mary had for him, for the part in particular that he had played in the divorce that was granted to her father, Henry VIII, from her mother. She continued to insist upon his execution. Even though he had recanted like this, she was insisting that he be executed. She had this desire for vengeance to that extent. All things were put into place then for his execution. The funeral pyre, to put it that way, the fire, the wood stacked all around. The stake was prepared for his execution to be burned at the stake. He was given an opportunity to speak, which he took advantage of. And they were anticipating an extension of this confession that I've just read to you. And guaranteed to him that they would pray for his soul. That it would be granted to be drawn eventually out of purgatory. So they expected to hear some good words. But he recognized in the time between these things, he recognized his wickedness, his sin, his lack of faith in Christ. But they had this and they gave him an opportunity to speak. And he began to speak of his worst sin being in that document that bore the recantation of his true faith and renouncing that recantation renouncing the recantation 
he bravely spoke, saying, And as for as much as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrines. The Lord took away his fear of death conspicuously because of his prayers and reading the scriptures, praying for forgiveness. The Lord took away that fear of death from Thomas Cramner. And we're told that in the flames, as he carried out his promise, holding his hand steadfastly over the fire while it was burned to a crisp, while the rest of his body had hardly been touched yet, he's holding that over the flame. Can you imagine the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of our God? He held that hand over the fire while it was burnt, and he continued over and again exclaiming this unworthy right hand that signed that, recant, that recantation of the truth. And finally, he said at last, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And with his faith renewed by the grace of God, his body perished in the flames of martyrdom. Death did not prevail over their servant of the Lord because of the grace of God. His faith faltered, yes, but it was renewed and in the end overcame the fear of death. In the words of Paul, thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be able to shout every day again and again. By God's grace, recognize the many victories that he gives us through his grace and through his God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, helping us, guiding and directing. This victory was promised by Jesus in Matthew 16. Peter had responded to our Lord's question that was made to all his disciples when he said, but who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. Jesus Christ promised. He said himself. This was promised to the bride of Christ. His body that he was to leave upon earth, the church, immediately following the making of this promise, 
We read, Jesus from that time began to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. I don't believe that's an accidental connection between this promise to his bride, the church, that the gates of Hades would not prevail. And then speaking almost immediately afterwards of his own death. He was going to build his church upon this rock of which he spoke. Many have been convinced, speaking of himself, the rock. I know there's a lot of disagreement about this and so on, and I understand. But I believe that he was speaking of himself upon this rock, the rock that Peter had just confessed, the son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail over it. Is he not spoken of even by David in more than, more than 20 times in the Psalms, but many other times in the Old Older Testament? He is the rock. And I don't know that, I didn't discover that Peter was spoken of as the rock in any occasion other than this verse that we're looking at. Remember that Moses requested to see the glory of Jehovah in uh, Exodus 33. If you want to turn there, Exodus 33. Moses requested, asked of God that he might see his glory. That he might see his glory. We look at the 18th verse. Well, let's back up to 17. And Jehovah said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found favor in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, Show me, I pray thee, thy glory. And he said, I will make all my glory pass before thee, and will proclaim the name of Jehovah before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Jehovah said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon the rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Show me thy glory, Moses pleaded with Jehovah. Show me thy glory. Well, Paul speaks perhaps of this in 2 Corinthians in the fourth chapter. Consider the sixth verse. Seeing it is God that said, Light 
shall shine out of darkness, who shined in our hearts. Now you know the context Paul is writing about our Lord Jesus Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What was promised and what God did for Moses, showing him his glory. I believe that the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, according to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, right here. Show me thy glory. Seeing it is God that said, light shall shine out of darkness. We all know that that light was Jesus Christ that shined out of darkness and who shined in our hearts to give us light, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does not the writer of Hebrews make it known very early on in his sermon it's been left for us to read that the Son of God is the effulgence, the brightness, the lightning, if you will, of the glory of God, Jesus Christ, that has shined, who has shined in our hearts. But as I said 28 times, at least in the Psalms, Christ is spoken of as the rock. In Psalm 18, and the second verse we may read, and I believe we sing this as a chorus. I love thee, O Jehovah, my strength. Jehovah is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Jehovah Jesus. And in another verse in that same psalm, we read Jehovah liveth. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Who is the God of our salvation? Well, yes, the triune God is the God of our salvation. But who is spoken of more often of the one who has brought salvation through his blood, our Lord Jesus Christ, the rock. Again, the psalmist says in 62, my soul waiteth in silence for God only. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my high tower. I shall not be greatly moved. And in 71, the psalmist prays, Be thou to me a rock of habitation. Is Jesus Christ not a rock of habitation? Does he not dwell in his people? Does he not dwell with his people? Is Christ not in us the hope of glory? Be thou to me a rock of habitation whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. He is our all in all. He is the rock. He is our rock. And we read in this kind of history that's given us in Psalm 78, we read this as a historical 
narrative, if you will, and they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer, their redeemer. Paul testifies of this rock, does he not? In 1 Corinthians 10, the first four verses, Paul writes, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and did all eat that same spiritual food, and did all drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He is our water. He is our bread. Is that not so? We feast on him. We quench our thirst through him, the water of life. And is the chief cornerstone spoken of in the scriptures, not the rock himself. According to Paul, the church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20, you know. And Peter agrees completely with Paul. We read in 1 Peter 2.6, Peter citing from the Older Testament, Isaiah 28.16, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. He's the chief cornerstone. Is a cornerstone not a rock? The gates of Hades in Matthew are the same. Gates of which we read, I believe, which we read of as the gates of death in the Older Testament. A number of times, several or more. As in Job 38, 17, Jehovah answering Job out of the whirlwind says, have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the gates of the shadow of death? And see also Psalm 107, if we need a little confirmation, Psalm 107. In verse 18. Their soul abhorred. These are, he's talking about fools because of their transgression. They're afflicted and so on. But he says, he says, their soul abhorreth all manner of food. They're sick so that they don't even want to eat. They abhorreth all manner of food. They're sick unto death. Which I believe is what we have here when the psalmist has written, their soul abhorreth all manner of food and they draw near unto the gates of death. Hades represents death and is rendered in that way more often than not. The gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol. Old Testament Hades and, and the New Testament is equivalent more often than not to Sheol in the Old Testament. Speaking of death, the gates of death. Christ has promised that the gates of death would not prevail against his church, you see. 
these things are the same. Psalm 6, 5 and 16, 10. Psalm 6, 5. Speaking of these things, we read. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I flipped too far. These pages are so fine. I was in Job again. 6.5, for in death there is no remembrance of thee. Pretty much what the psalmist had said in our Psalm 103. There is no remembrance of thee in Sheol. Who shall give thee thanks? Comparing, paralleling death with Sheol, you see. And in 16, in 16.10. And you'll remember that Psalm 16 speaks very much uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, and I believe Peter cites this in Acts 16.10, For thou wilt not leave my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of the grave. Sheol and the grave are one and the same. The gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death, they're all speaking of the grave, speaking of death, speaking of our last residence, if I can put it that way. And Christ has promised, I believe, in Matthew 16, that the gates of death will not prevail against us. Even as they didn't prevail against Thomas Cranmer, even as they have not prevailed against many of the saints of God, so they will not prevail against his church, which is constituted by all those for whom Christ died. That is the true church of the elect of God. I would like to read from Isaiah 25. These words at verse 6 through 8. And in this mountain will Jehovah of hosts make unto all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering that covereth all peoples, and the veil that is spread over all nations. I don't know if he's intending to be speaking of the face being covered and cover, the covering of all people as relating to, the, to the, those veils and things that they cover the bodies of when they bury them. But he goes on to say, He hath swallowed up death forever, and the Lord Jehovah will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the reproach of his people will he take away from off all the earth, for Jehovah hath spoken it. He hath swallowed up death, Death intended to swallow up Jesus Christ, but it couldn't swallow him. It couldn't get him down his ugly throat because he was perfectly holy, and he is perfectly holy, and death had to vomit him back out. He couldn't keep him. And the day will come when death will have to vomit up all those that he has swallowed over the many centuries. 
that belonged to Jesus Christ because Christ promised, he promised that the gates of death would not prevail against his people, would not prevail against his church, his bride. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for the promises of our Lord and Savior. We thank thee for thy goodness and mercy to us. None of it being deserved by us, but everything being deserved and merited by our Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God. Our Father, we thank thee and we praise thee for that blood. We thank thee for our Savior. We thank thee for thy love, the love of a father, Abba. And we thank thee for God, the Holy Spirit's willingness to indwell these still vile temples. We praise thee tonight and thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction. Like the rest of the message, it's a little longer than usual. 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is preached that he hath been raised from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, neither hath Christ been raised. And if Christ hath not been raised, then is our preaching vain. Your faith also is vain, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we witnessed of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, neither hath Christ been raised. And if Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also that are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most pitiable. But Christ has been raised. Amen. Praise God.